This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. This is from the first letter of John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we saw it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing this, that our joy may be complete. And elsewhere, St. Paul writes simply, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count everything as loss. And St. Paul was a man totally in love with Jesus Christ. And in light of Christ Jesus, nothing else was worth knowing if you didn't know that one thing. Uh, this weekend is an opportunity for us to Come to know the one worth knowing before whom all other knowledge pales. Uh, we come to know, you know, wisdom incarnate himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. So hopefully, you know, we ask the Holy Spirit to come upon us this weekend that it would be a time that we come to know the Lord more and more deeply, more and more truly. Everything about Jesus is a lesson. Everything he does, everything he is. Uh, Christ is a teacher at all times. Uh, there's no part of the gospel you can read that is not explicitly designed with you know, your learning in mind so that Christ is the most perfect of teachers and that anything he does is a lesson that can be, can be studied, can be reflected on. Um, I was looking through the Summa Theologiae before this, and I, ha I was lucky enough to I have a, an old copy of, it's an English, the English translation, but it's an old three-volume copy that belongs to an old dead Dominican. A lot of the cool things that you end up having in the order belongs to an old dead Dominican at one point or another. So this is what I have. I have Father Tom Donahue's um, Summa, and Father Tom was a um, missionary in Pakistan for decades. Um, before he entered the order, he was um, an, a Navy medic in World War II, uh, yeah, I used to, I lived with him before he died, and uh, he also he would have a Budweiser regularly. And so one time I asked my like, father, Father Tom, when did you start having Budweiser? And he goes, ah, uh, when I was 15, <laughs> and Prohibition was still going on. <laughs> uh, so you know, he was a great, he was a really, really great man, a really unbelievably impressive guy. Not because of that, I mean that's impressive, but um, but because he. Uh, he would spend his entire time when he was old. I mean, he was like six foot five, but I was taller than him by the time I entered the order because he was just bent over basically double. He spent his entire day basically getting from his room to the chapel, from the chapel to the refectory. And then by the time he was done eating, it was about time to try to get back to the chapel to keep praying. And that's how he lived. So he was just a really great man. So I have his, his summa, which has like the most pleasingly perfectly lined underlines and notes and um, in one section, in the part where St. Thomas starts to talk about the Incarnation, to talk about Christ, the beginning of the Tertia Pars, Father Tom had just written one thing. He had written, Christ is the divine word in human language. 
Christ is the divine word in human language. Christ is the perfect fulfillment of revelation. De Verbum, which is the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution on revelation, he sa it says that Jesus perfected revelation by fulfilling it through his whole work of making himself present and manifesting himself through his words and deeds, his signs and wonders, but especially through his death and glorious resurrection from the dead and final sending of the spirit of truth. Christ is the perfect revelation of God's love. So everything he does, everything he is, is a lesson for us. The very fact that Christ is true God and true man is a lesson. The incarnation is the greatest lesson. What's it a lesson about? It's a lesson about God's love for us, the goal towards which we're heading as Christians, and how God intends to accomplish that great work of bringing his creature man back to himself fully. It's all there in Jesus Christ. So, why did the word become flesh then? Why did the incarnation happen? We're here to spend this weekend thinking about that question. What are the motives of the incarnation? And in the Summa, in the very first question of the third, sorry, it's always confusing when we talk about the, the first question of the third part of the Summa, um, we're led to one of the most rich passages of considering this question of why God became man, just by St. Thomas asking the question of whether or not it was necessary, if it had to happen. This is something St. Thomas likes to do. He likes to look at something that happened, and then he asks if it had to happen. He does this a lot. It, uh, it can get dry at first, but every now and then, well, more more, more now than then, if that makes any sense. We delete that part too. Um, you get some really, really gold answers. And so St. Thomas wants to know whether it was necessary for the restoration of the human race that the word of God should become incarnate, whether it was necessary. Did it have to be this way? In order for God to save us, did the word have to become flesh? St. Thomas starts in his little said contra, the little blurb after the objections. He says, what frees the human race from perdition is necessary for the salvation of man. That's pretty obvious. So what frees us is necessary for our salvation. But the mystery of the incarnation is such, according to John 3.16, God so loved the world as to give his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. Therefore, it was necessary for man's salvation that God should become incarnate. So he says that, but then he immediately qualifies what he means by necessary. He likes to do that too. He likes to qualify things. So in answering whether it was necessary or not, he first says that you can think about things being necessary in two ways. First, something can be necessary absolutely. So like when you can't have the thing you need without that so for you need to eat to stay alive. Food is necessary. Nutrition is necessary for survival. So that's the sort of, you know, absolute necessity, something that just can't have happen without it. Then he says, secondly, though, there's a necessity when the end is attained better and more conveniently as a horse is necessary for a journey. Which is great for us to hear that now. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, really, really strikes home. You know, I'm sure that all of you arrived here today uh, horseback. Uh, I guess the odds of Texans is better than most, but, uh, you know, I think I'm safe. I don't think anybody, like, 
hitched their horse up outside to do American House of Studies. But so there's primary absolute necessity, and then there's necessity when the end is attained better and more conveniently, as when a horse is necessary for a journey. And then he continues and he says, in the first way, so in that absolute way, it was not necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. It's not absolutely necessary. Why? Because God's omnipotent. God, with his omnipotent power, could have restored human nature in many other ways. He could have done it just about, well, any way that he would have chosen to do. He could have. God is all-powerful. He didn't absolutely have to. But, says St. Thomas, in the second way, it was necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. So in that second horse way, the sort of the way of the horse, uh, it was necessary because it's better and more convenient. Uh, there's actually an inside joke that St. Thomas is doing with the whole horse thing uh, because he's talking to a room full of Dominicans, right? And Dominicans at that time, you know, we're much, I'm much more lax Dominican, but at that time they had to walk everywhere. So this is like, like Paris to Rome walking. Um, so if he says this to a room full of Dominicans, like, you know, it's necessary. Like, you know, a horse is necessary to get somewhere. So his whole point is like, it's not absolutely necessary. It's, it can be more convenient. It can be very, it could be very convenient. If you're probably, you know, halfway between Paris and Rome, you'd probably think about how convenient it would be to have a horse. But the fact is that it's not absolutely necessary, but it's better and more convenient. And he quotes St. Augustine, who says that there was not a more fitting way of healing our misery than that the word became flesh. There was not a more fitting way. So it's the absolutely most fitting way that he's going to save us. He didn't have to. He wasn't limited. It wasn't constrained. But it is completely fitting. Remember that everything about Christ is a lesson to us. So even the fact that he is true God and true man, that he is uh one divine person with two natures. Professor Gorman is going to talk a lot more about that, I, I hope. Um, good. Excellent. He's nodding. That's good. So he will. Um, so I'll just leave it there. Um, I'll give him the much heavier lift. But everything about that is a lesson. So why? Why is it absolutely most fitting, most perfect, most convenient, most illuminating for God to become man? So Thomas then goes on with the rest of this article um, to look at that. And he gives uh, five reasons why the incarnation is for our positive benefit and another five reasons for why it saves us from evil. So what he's actually doing, he's literally writing a top 10. Like St. Thomas is giving you like kind of like a, an internet article about the top 10 reasons God loves you and became man. <laughs> Except he's just really bad at writing like internet articles because, you know, nobody would click on, you know, that something that starts with like three objections a weird said contra, a whole bunch of patristic things in a dusty book, you know, but that's what he's doing. He's just saying there's 10 reasons and we're going to start listing the top 10 reasons. So we're going to do that now. So my talk is essentially just a top 10. We're going to do uh, St. Thomas's top 10 reasons for why God became man. Uh, first, the positive benefits of the incarnation. First, he says, with regard to faith which is made more certain by believing God himself who speaks. You know, Jesus can talk. He can say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. 
he can say, your sins are forgiven. And he says that. There's a man standing in front of you saying those words. So faith is made more certain by believing God himself who speaks. It's not an intermediary. It's not a prophet. Well, Christ is a prophet in the most fulfilled sense of the word. He is the prophet, but he is priest, prophet, and king, but he is not just a mere man prophet. He is man, but he's also the, he is the God man. It's very difficult, Lord, to talk about you. You have to <laughs> qualify these things. Um, but faith is made more certain. God spoke to us in human words and gestures. He lived a human life. Second, with regard to hope, which is thereby greatly strengthened. Hence, Augustine says, this is in De Trinitate 13, nothing was so necessary for raising our hope as to show us how deeply God loved us. And what could afford us a stronger proof than this, than that the Son of God should become a partner with us of human nature? So if, you, you know, if, if we doubt that God loves us, like he became man for you. He emptied himself and took the form of a slave and was known of the likeness of men. Hope is trust in God, right? And so tr this trust increases, and God not just doesn't just promise his help, but he also gives us his help, and he shows his benevolence to us in a way that appeals to our senses. It's not, he's not just telling us things, he's showing us things in Christ. You know, come to me. So he becomes, he takes on human flesh so he can speak to you. Come to me. Christ is our hope. And he's not just the object of our hope or our proof that Christ, because of his grace, can become the actual cause of our hope, the motive force of our hope. He prompts it, actually. He doesn't sort of show himself to us and wait for us. He actually can give us the power to hope in him. So the incarnation strengthens our hope. In another part, uh, another thing that he wrote, the Summa Contra Gentiles, um, St. Thomas reflects more on this. Uh, in the Summa, he then moves on, but there's another reason it helps our hope. Uh, so what's the end of life? What's our absolute goal? It's the beatific vision. It's the vision of God. It's God being so united to us, like the thing that we know is united to our intellects. Like that's just so intimate that the object that we know is actually present to our mind. And that's what we're destined for, is like God to be that united to us as a concept, an object to your intellect. And so you can think about this like, well, there's an immeasurable distance between like my intellect and God, who we don't even know what God's essence is. You know, and you're telling me that I'm going to be perfectly united to him. And so... There's a danger of despairing of that goal. Like, is that actually possible? And God says, yes, it is. In fact, I'll actually become man. You know, Christ had the beatific vision at every moment of his existence. He enjoyed that. He was perfectly united with God in his human nature as well. So God just shows it to us. Yes, it's possible. Here, look, I can do it for you right now. So it helps our hope. The fact that God, this is St. Thomas, the fact that God willed to unite himself personally with human nature clearly proves to the human being that it is possible to be united to God by his intellect so as to see him immediately. Therefore, it was most fitting for God to assume human nature 
in order to raise in the human being the hope for beatitude. So, strengthens our faith, strengthens our hope. Ten dollars if you can guess what it next strengthens. <laughs> yes. Strengthens our fiscal responsibility. Um, <laughs> no, it's our charity. Thirdly, with regard to charity, which is greatly enkindled by this. Hence, Augustine says, he really is into quoting Augustine here. What greater cause is there of the Lord's coming than to show God's love for us? And afterwards, Augustine adds, if we have been slow to love, at least let us hasten to love in return. Um, you know, Christ comes to enkindle our love. The word takes flesh. You know, God in himself can't suffer. He can't be changed. He can't be harmed in any way. But a man can. Christ can, could. He's now glorified, so he's impassable. But now, when Christ took flesh, he took flesh, why? To suffer and to die for us and to rise from the dead so that he comes to show us the absolute profundity of the love of God. Um, so again, if you ever doubt that God loves you, look at a crucifix. The conversation's over. God loves you. You have to start living in reality. And reality is that God loves you. And that, that's the, the, that actually determines your worth as well. It's not just that you might feel unlovable, but that God has spoken. He has sent his word to prove that you are lovable. You are beloved because he has chosen you and his word became flesh for you. As the father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And it's, so what, with what love does Christ loves, love us? With the love of the father. As the father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in that love, that perfect love between the Father and the Son. So, primarily, first for St. Thomas, the incarnation does what? It strengthens our faith, our hope, and our love. The theological virtues that are given to us in baptism, the three powers by which we can be united to God in himself. We can have God as like the object of our actions, and Christ comes to bolster that, to strengthen that, to bestow them upon us, to make them ever more powerful. And that's something that's available to us now. You know, it's not just something that happened then, but like the incarnation can have an effect on you now. Well, what did we just spend an hour doing? Hope, I mean, some of the brothers probably spend it fighting off sleep. Um, <laughs> not that I've ever, ever done that. I was always vigilant in the third castle, uh, you know, deep, deep in ecstasy, uh, you know, nodding profoundly. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's really funny to see it happen to somebody else, but then when it's, when it's you, it's, it's awful. Um, anyway, you know, but you can, you're look, we're looking at God. I mean, he's, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And to think about him, to contemplate him, to put your mind in contact with him is healing, is nourishing, is strengthening, is important to do. It's important to think about Jesus. Like, not just to try to feel about him, but to think about him. Like, what is he like? Like, how is he God and man? Again, that's something that Professor Gorman will help us, hopefully, to give us the apparatus to think about that as well. But then to know that it actually affects how you worship. You know, your faith, your hope, and your love. You can make acts of faith, hope, and love. And by thinking more, contemplating 
incarnation, contemplating the fact that God became man, we can love him more. We can believe in him more deeply. We can hope in him more firmly. So the fourth, so we're again, we're looking at the first five of the top, first five of the top ten is um, for the positive benefit of men, faith, hope, and love. Fourthly, with regard to well-doing, Jesus gives us an example. Hence, Augustine, once again, says in the sermon, man who might be seen was not to be followed, but God was to be followed, who could not be seen, and therefore, God was made man. Very convenient. You can't see God, but he's the one you need to be perfect, like. So God will actually make himself visible so that you can actually see him and learn from him, so that people can then write down the things that he did, so you can read about it, and, as it were, see and believe and imitate him. Therefore God was made man, that he who might be seen by man and whom man might follow might be shown to man. Holiness is imitation of Christ. Christ is our example in all virtues. He is perfect. Every other you know, human being has flaws. Even the best people that we know do have flaws. And so they, they can't be the sort of absolute sure source of moral uh, exemplitude. You can't just know that if I just look at this person and do what they're doing, I'll be all right. No, it's, but Christ gives you that. To imitate Christ is always a good bet. Don't try to walk on water, but, um, you know, morally to imitate Christ is good. Because he'll be living in you. It's also that he's not just waiting for you. He lives in you. He lives his example in you. Fifthly, with regard to the full participation of the divinity, which is the true bliss of man and end of human life. And this is bestowed upon us by Christ's humanity. What does that mean? Fifthly, with regard to the full participation of the divinity. What does that mean? The full participation of the divinity. What does that mean? For Augustine says in the sermon, God was made man that man might be made God. St. Augustine said that. God was made man that man might be made God. Full so, full participation of the divinity. Um, so he's talking about divinization, uh, you know, that we shall, in some way, participate in the divine nature. Um, what that looks like, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not against finding out what it looks like. Um, but... We need to stretch our horizons when we think about what the actual uh, call of the human person is, that we're called to participate in the divine nature. Like, do not set short goals for yourself. You're made to participate God. You're made to be deified. You're made to be gods. We can say that. Jesus says that. Um, you know, he quotes a psalm that says, I have said to you, you are gods. You know, uh, there's many ways you can get that wrong. You can get that very wrong, you know, but uh, it is true. And it's important to you know, think about that and consider. And this is also in what Second Peter, first chapter of that, that we're called to be partakers of the divine nature, to be united to God so as to share his life. The immortal, the invisible, all-powerful God. So, and that's just, that's the fifth reason that St. Thomas gives for positive benefit. He moves on then to the second half of his top 10, and he gives five reasons why the incarnation saves us from evil. 
So the incarnation was also useful for our withdrawal from evil. First, or sixth, but we'll say first. First, because man is taught by it not to prefer the devil to himself, nor to honor him who is the author of sin. Hence, Augustine says, since human nature is so united to God as to become one person, that's the incarnation, let not these proud spirits dare to prefer themselves to man because they have no bodies. Secondly, because we are taught thereby how great is man's dignity, lest we should sully it with sin. The incarnation teaches us about our dignity. Hence, Augustine says, God has proved to us how high a place human nature holds amongst creatures. God has proved to us how high a place human nature holds among creatures, inasmuch as he appeared to men as a true man. And then Thomas gets wild and he quotes Pope Leo the Great, not St. Augustine. And Pope Leo says in a sermon on the Nativity, Learn, O Christian, thy worth. Learn, O Christian, thy worth. And being made a partner of the divine nature, refuse to return to evil deeds by to your formal to your former worthlessness. Learn your worth. Learn your dignity. You do that by looking at Jesus, by thinking about him. Is when you see Jesus Christ, when you behold him, when you contemplate him, you don't see just him. You also see your worth, the full scope of your dignity. It's not found in yourself first. It's found in him. And it's actualized by unity with him. Uh, this is incredibly important in the spiritual life. Because in the spiritual life, there's you and God. And you need to look at both. And you shouldn't look at just one or the other. Uh, if you look only at God, you will just presume that you're great. And that everything is wonderful. Because God is great and wonderful. But if you look only at yourself, you will despair. And you will hate yourself. And you will spend your life hating yourself, ashamed of yourself. We know ourselves uh, all too well. We know our failings all too well. And if we only look at that without looking at God as well, we lose a sense of our worth. We lose a sense of our dignity. And so we need to look at Jesus Christ to learn our dignity. To see that he can, you know, he can have the marks of our sins on his body and he can transform them into glorious trophies. You know, he's not phased by our shamefulness. He's not shamed by our sin, by our fallenness. He's not bothered by it. He's not, it does, it's no trouble for him to defeat it, and he does. So we need to keep him in mind as well. Learn, O Christian, thy worth. Thirdly, because in order to do away with man's presumption, the grace of God is commended in Jesus Christ, though no merits of ours went before. Oh, that was, he was quoting Augustine there too, sorry. Um, as Augustine says in De Trinitate 13. Um, thirdly, to do away with presumption. Why? Because God loves us first. It's when we were dead in our sins that God sent his son. You know, when we were dead in our sins. It wasn't because, you know, God looked down and said, wow. I really want to hang out with them. They are really impressive. I need to spend time with them because they look like they're having a great time. No, it's when we were dead and he just kind of looked just like this awful, like kind of post-apocalyptic battle scene. They're just like, 
bodies everywhere. And God says, I will go down there and we and it will be better. <laughs> no, it's like, you know, like Ezekiel, like Ezekiel, what is it, 36, something? Ezekiel in the mid-30s of his chapters. Not anyway, sorry. <laughs> Can we we really yeah, okay, good. We're gonna cut that. Um Oh, he's, oh it's, it's dry bones. Like he sees this valley of dry bones, and the voice speaks in like, "Can these bones live? Can these bones live?" And he says, "You know, prophesy, son of man, prophesy to the bones." And then he hears this big rattling sound, and the spirit comes, and, they, and his flesh is joined on them, and they stand up. Um, you know, so it's when we were just dry bones that God sent His Son. So uh, we should not think that it's because of our own worth. You know, grace does heal you, purify you, and make you uh, worthy and good. But God loves you not because you're good. He loves you because he's good. And his love makes you good. So, in order to do away with man's presumption, the grace of God is commended in Jesus Christ, though no merits of ours went before, as Augustine says. Fourth, because, quote, Man's pride, which is the greatest stumbling block to our clinging to God, can be convinced and cured by humility so great, end quote, as Augustine says in the same place. The incarnation curbs our pride. These were conv convicted by the humility of Christ, who though he was rich, made himself most poor, so that we might be made rich. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself and took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. So Christ's the sort of action of the incarnation, like this huge V, this kind of you know descent and ascent, that he is, you know, he is the word. He is the word who was with he is with God and is God. And he empties himself. While remaining what he was, he became what he was not. He unites human nature to himself, and then he ascends with it. So we go, here's the cross, here's the grave, and then he ascends. He rises from the dead. To curb man's pride, we see Christ's humility. Think about it, like Christ became a baby. You know? Like, I mean, babies are absolutely wonderful and they're really, really, really cute. But, um, you know, like they can't, like they can't even like control their arms at first. They can't even like look at you. And you do the thing like they'll just kind of like hold on to your finger for a while. Um, they don't have so like, and he did that. He went through that. You know, the uh, the word became an infant. You know what infant literally means? Like enfons, like speak, like can't speak, speechless. The word, like lost in a sense, lost the ability to speak for us. Like took on humility so great. Fifth, in order to free man from the thraldom of sin, which, as Augustine says, ought to be done in such a way that the devil should be overcome by the justice of the man Jesus Christ, and this was done by Christ satisfying for us. Now, a mere man could not have satisfied for the whole human race, and God was not bound to satisfy. So that's the problem right there. After the fall... Humanity has insulted, offended an infinite being. So, you know, it's worse if you punch the Pope than if you punch, like, me or Joe, you know. Punch me instead. Don't punch Joe. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a worse thing to harm or to offend or to wrong someone of greater dignity. And we wronged one of 
infinite dignity. So there's this infinite debt incurred. Now, a mere man could not have satisfied for the whole human race. Also that, there's not just one person, but it's now the entire human race. A mere man could not have satisfied for the whole human race, and God was not bound to satisfy. God doesn't owe it to us. He did not have to become flesh. He did not have to save us. He did not owe it to us. Hence, it behooved, Jesus, nice word, it behooved Jesus Christ to be both God and man. <laughs> I've, uh, sorry, Father Thomas Joseph White's uh, voice in my head. He's this strange, brilliant man. Uh, he's a you know, short little guy from Georgia who studied in England and then lived in France and studied in the Ivy League. So his voice sounds very, very weird. Um, but I just said, when I, I hear his Christology class, hence it behoved Jesus Christ to be both God and man. Um, so, mere man could not have satisfied for the whole human race. God wasn't bound to satisfy. Hence, Jesus Christ is both God and man. Hence, Pope Leo says in the same sermon, weakness is assumed by strength, lowliness by majesty, mortality by eternity, in order that one and the same mediator of God and men might die in one and rise in the other. So he can die in his human nature and rise in his divine nature. For this was our fitting remedy. Unless Christ was God, he would not have brought a remedy. And unless he was man, he would not have set an example. Unless he was God, he would not have brought a remedy. And unless he was man, he would not have set an example. So that's the tenth reason. And then St. Thomas ends it by saying, and there are very many other advantages which accrued above man's apprehension. Uh, which is awesome. I mean, in one sense, it's, it's very funny. It's like, yeah, and there's a whole lot of other things that we don't even understand. But uh, that think about that. The word healed and transformed at levels we're not even aware of. The sort of the depth, the totality of uh, the saving work of the incarnation has advantages that we're benefiting from that we have no apprehension of, which is a great thing to think about. So much, much, much more could be said, but these are uh, this is the wisdom of St. Thomas Aquinas in his reflecting on uh, you know, the depth of the mystery, the manifestation of which we'll celebrate uh, in you know, just a week's time. Um, and so hopefully this has whet your appetites for more in the talks to come. Uh, but for now, I'm happy just to take your objections. So. No. Oh. All right, we're going to cut. We're definitely going to cut that. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Very nice of you. Any, thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Yeah. I'll pay you later. <laughs> uh, questions, thoughts? Yes. Um, so you said that um, it's not absolutely necessary, according to Aquinas, that God must become man. Mm -hmm. Did Did you mean that it's not necessary that God become man at all, or that it's not necessary that God become man in order to save man from? Uh, good question. Both. Okay. Both. I mean, yeah. Um, one is just he, he's not ever bound just to become man. He's right. yeah. perfect in himself. But then specifically the question is... Um, whether in order to save us from our sins, it's necessary. So like, is this the tool? Is this the only tool for the job? You know, how, so, how yeah. do we know that? Know what? That it would not be absolutely necessary for God to become man in order to save us from our 
so the reason he gives is that God's omnipotence, that God is all-powerful, so he's not absolutely constrained by this. And then you can talk about sort of a conditional necessity in the sense like if God has you know, predestined or determined that he's going to do this, then yes, in a certain sense it's necessary. Or then the second, the sort of horse necessity of um, it is in a way the most perfect, beautiful, fitting way that this could be achieved and that we can be instructed by this. But that it's not the case that like we got ourselves into this situation and then God is like, ugh, I have to become man now to save these people. Like I didn't, I was, you know, he's like, I'm on the couch. I don't want to, don't make me become man. Don't do, ah, uh, you did it. Uh, I have to become man now. Um, no, so he's omnipotent, but he loves us. Um, you know, he's not a lazy dad sitting on the couch. He's a loving father, um, you know, and he wants us to also know how much he loves us. And the incarnation is the perfect way. So, I guess yeah. the, the connection that I'm feeling to make is uh, I understand that um, there are ways in which God's omnipotence doesn't mean that he can do like anything because there are things that God cannot do simply because they are the contradiction terms. Mm-hmm. Um, For example, um, satisfying the, that last point, satisfying the, the the whole covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, the covenant has to be satisfied because God can't go back on the covenant. He can't simply take away the covenant because that falls in one of those things that God can't. Like, he can. He could have. He could have simply just forgiven the debt. Okay. You know, he could have just done that. I mean, that's the. If you want to also read like an awesome thing, like read. Uh, I think it's like question forty-eight in the Tertiary Pars on the on the Passion of Christ. Like, like he's asking, like, was it? He asked the same question. Was it necessary that he suffer and dies? Like, well. No, I mean St. Thomas has this um has this beautiful prayer um to the Eucharist, um, the Adorate Devote, um, Godhead here in hiding, whom I do adore. There's one part, it's um Pie Pelicani Jesu Domine me mundum munda tuo sanguine cuius una stila salvum facere totum mundum quid ab omni Right? <laughs> uh, no, so it's a you know, so holy pelican, pious pelican Jesus. You know, so, Pie pelicane, Jesu Domine, like holy pelican, uh, because of the sort of Im- the myth of the pelican makes itself bleed to feed its young. Well, ask me later. Um, so, Pie pelicane, Jesu Domine, Lord Jesus, me immundum munda tuo sanguine. So, cleanse my, stain my filth by your blood. Cuius unastila, of which unastila, one drop, unastila, salvum facere, totum mundum, quit ab omniscellere, was... Essentially, one drop of your blood has the power to cleanse the entire world of its sin, and he poured all of it out. You know, so it's an—it's not a like—it's not him meeting some sort of like absolute necessity, but it's a total superabundant expression of his love. It's a—you know—the incarnation and the passion—they're at their heart, they're mysteries of love, not of some kind of contractual fulfillment or legal uh, settlement. It's love. It's a manifestation of divine love. He doesn't need to do it. You know, we're there. We got like our little thimble. He's like, here, have like a five gallon. And he just dumps it over us. Um, I mean, much more can be said. Um, and we can talk more. This is also where we have Saturday. So, um, but more questions? Yes. Uh, I guess this is kind of nitpicky, but. Um, Please. Uh, you're talking to like, this is the order in which <laughs> nits are picked here. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't it have been like better almost if like Jesus had written stuff down? Aha, he's like Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas asks this exact same question. Would it not have better for been better for Christ to have written a book? 
Okay. Yeah. And then like, if there was like other sources, because then people are like, oh, it's a circular argument. How you can only find Christ in the Bible and like not historically mm-hmm. from any other source. But if you could be like, hey, Jesus wrote this, mm-hmm. you could look at the other places. Right. Uh, well, in one sense, my kind of snarky self says like. People would not have been satisfied with that either. It was said he didn't really write that book, you know. Yeah, exactly. So in the same sense of like, you know, even if one were to rise from the dead, who said? That? Oh, Jesus said that. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, but I know your. I, I feel your pain there. But um, no. So like, it's it's not even that is not going to satisfy. And also, like you know, belief is a it's a gift from God at its heart as well. Um, but that why was it most fitting that um, Christ should not have written a book? Um, book, I'm going to write that down. Because otherwise, I'm going to try to remember something I read like two years ago. So I've now written it down, and I'll look it up, and you will be here until Sunday. You will ask me again later, okay? Unless Professor Gorman knows right now at the top of his head. Great, excellent. I'll read the book. Good question. Is a definition to mystic question. So good job. Yes, Scott. I think it's a point that there is a very very uh, uh, important example of a religion founded upon a book that was written by the founder of that religion. Uh, but the fact that we're in this room is indication that it's not as satisfying as we might think. Okay. I'm not going to say anything into the microphone. Yeah. Great. Yeah. More questions, thoughts, objections? Yes. Could you expand on Mm-hmm. Um, and God becoming object or intellect. Um, mm-hmm. What do you mean by that phrase? Sure. Sure, yeah. So, um, so faith, hope, and love are the theological virtues. Um, so virtues are, you know, dispositions, so like powers that we can have, habits, like stable dispositions for action. Um, so, and they enable us to do things. Um, and... The thing about us is that we're strange little creatures because we're made um, for something we can't reach. We're made to be united to God. We're made to know and love God. But God is uh, supernatural. He is totally, he is, you know, he is transcendent. He is infinite. Uh, a, cre- a creaturely nature, a created power cannot like of its own strength attain to a creator. So that's kind of a problem that we seem to be kind of made uh, in a frustrated sense. But we're made, well, first, we're initially created in grace. And this is what, you know, uh, grace does. You know, grace is God's, uh, you know, a share in the divine life. And the theological virtues are supernatural virtues. They're supernatural powers given to our soul so that we can know God through faith, so that we can actually, so it's something above our powers that is united to us. So we're capable of it, but we, and then hope as well, so that we can, you know, trust God, have a you know inclination of the will towards Him as our promised good, and love, so that we can love Him as a friend. And these are all things that God begins in us. It's not something that we sort of, the ground we push off of is uh, like the palm of God's hand. Like it's He's the one who is there for us. Does that help a little bit? Good. Okay. Great. Yes. You said the incarnation is a lesson. I did. Everything uh, Christ does it can be a, is is a lesson. Yes. But how exactly would the incarnation be a lesson? Would it be like pertaining to the fourth uh, reason? Like, oh, all. Of- I kind of meant all of it. 
you know, in the sense of like the whole thing, like the fact of like, yeah, that God becomes man to think about it in all these different ways that um, we think about it with regards to our pride. The incarnation can heal that. We think about it with regards to our own sort of shame at our own sins. The incarnation can teach us about that as well, can teach us about what am I made for? What am I capable of by God's grace? The incarnation can teach you all of that. So I kind of intended the whole thing to be like the lesson of the incarnation. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Great. Well, thanks very much, y'all. We will cap it there.